I'd like to start by reading um, <clears throat> a paragraph here from The Secret Life of Bees by Sumang Kid. If the heat goes over 104 degrees in South Carolina, you have to go to bed. It's practically the law. <laughs> Some people might see it as a shiftless behavior. But really, when you're lying down from the heat, we're giving our minds time to browse around for new ideas, wondering at the true aim of life, and generally letting things pop into our heads that need to. In the sixth grade, there was a boy in my class who had a steel plate in his skull and always complaining how test answers could never get through him. Our teacher would say, quote, give me a break. In a way, though, the boy was right. Every human being on the face of the earth has a steel plate in his head. But if you lie down now and then and get still as you can, it will slide open like an elevator doors, letting in all the secret thoughts that have been standing around so patiently, pushing the button for the ride to the top. The real trouble is in life when those hidden doors stay closed for too long. But that's just my opinion. So hidden doors that stay closed for too long. So just a, a review here of kind of the uh, uh, talks we've had here. The first night, uh, Mary uh, talked about these uh, spiritual faculties or, in a sense, EDs or powers that are available to us in the sense of the uh, faith or confidence and, and um, uh, this uh, need for uh, effort, uh, the, this... Uh, the mindfulness, uh, some concentration, uh, developing also, hopefully, with some wisdom. Uh, then last night, Gil uh, took us kind of on this journey of uh, the, the, I would call it the wide field of mindfulness in the sense that is really based on this clear comprehension of uh, what he called uh, domain or meditation. Uh, then there was... Uh, the, in the sense, the uh, clear comprehension of, of purpose and um, of suitability and of uh, non-delusion. Uh, these four that he sort of tracked us through last night. Tonight, I would like to work with uh, the fact that uh, we've been here now. This is our third day. And um, I'm sure for all of you, uh, at some point, maybe not, is that uh, there are things we know as difficulties uh, that sometimes are kind of our shadow pieces or the, uh, the stuff in the closet or the little steel plate that uh, has been either hiding uh, uh, some of the kind of stuff in your head, storylines, or uh, something that's covering the heart or uh, some uh, avoidance of uh, our physical experience in some way. So as I was sitting in my 
uh, room over there, uh, one of the things I like to do is to organize my mind is to write uh, a poem. So I wrote you a poem for today. And uh, I just call it Vajrapani, Skillful Means. Sitting in the center of the circle, luminous perfection, the mirror unstained, heating up hotter and hotter, melting that frozen moment held in the closet of memory. Die, just die. Blue jays like great cheerleaders stirring you on, die, die. The past holds no future here. The whirling fans, hums, the eternal mantra, letting go, letting go, letting go. Like a prize fighter wanting that last win, staggering from hits and bruises of the old scars, bandages, so many times before. Same old stories told over and over, hoping that somehow the ending will be different. Sitting in the center of the circle, the breath reappears. Demons came to visit today, asking for my support. Quote, I did. But tomorrow, maybe not. With friends like these, who says the armoring of the heart won't melt? So uh, to kind of begin tonight in the sense of um, what to point at. And certainly uh, where I'm going to go is about the difficulties. Uh, but also, uh, there is uh, what is already here. Uh, what in some ways is obscured uh, by these difficulties. And it's something that must be named uh, as uh, something that is here with us in this room. Uh, sitting in the center of the circle, luminous perfection. The mere unstained. When we allow ourselves uh, to simply, when we're with the breath, to stop and not interfere uh, with uh, kind of our liking and disliking of things, but what is just here? Uh, from these teachings, there is this natural luminosity. In a sense, it is, it is, is that uh, your awakened self is something that is always present here, but also is something that's not recognized, is bypassed, is covered over, uh, is not acknowledged. Uh, I like this word, one taste that when we sit in the center of ourselves, there is simply this one taste. Uh, that one taste uh, 
from uh, that luminous mind. Uh, it says no separateness. Uh, we are the same, you and I. Uh, we actually have the same stories, you know, uh, in their essence. They may be different, but in their essence, same story. Uh, to recognize that, to hold that as uh, what we're doing here is, in a sense, um, the dignity uh, of uh, this Buddha of 2,500 years ago, that he uh, sat and he made a resolve that he wasn't going to be uh, lost in delusion, but he was going to awaken to actually here, to the moment. And that has been passed down all these centuries. It's not about somebody from the past. It's not about somebody that's going to come. It's actually somebody that's here now, uh, in your experience. <clears throat> but again, simply obscured. This is uh, from Dogen. In your meditation, you yourself are the mirror reflecting the solution of your problems. The human mind has absolute freedom within its true nature. You can attain your freedom intuitively. Do not work for freedom. Rather, allow the practice itself to be liberation. Allow the practice itself to be liberation. So I think in kind of defining uh, the territory that we work in and what, um, what is in a sense the, the uh, highest esteem, the highest form that's here, that, that sense of uh, dignity, of, of being. And at the same time, this is... Uh, from uh, François Fénolan, a monk in, what, 1651. And it simply goes, when the cure begins. As the light increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We're amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings, like fit, filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. We never could have believed that we had harbored such things, and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. But while our fa faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter. And we are filled with horror. Bear in mind for your comfort, that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. We only perceive our malady when the cure begins. So what is being said here is that um, the difficulties that arise, uh, these uh, kind of old stories, these scars, these um, sometimes unfulfilled dreams or... Um, uh, uh, pains of the past. That uh, this is not a practice that 
simply um, is, turn, is to turn away from them. It's actually the ability to turn towards them uh, and allow them, in a sense, to give them their moment. And so many times we have somehow blocked them and stored them in, you know, some in our bodies, in you know, some closet of the mind, and uh, not allowed uh, their passing. And so, in a way, as we kind of come into this uh, and we settle down, uh, a lot of times, in the kind of garbage. Uh, begins to arise. And um, this is not a bad thing. It is simply part of this uh, process that happens. I love this uh, kind of description from Ajahn Chah and Jack Cornfield uses as the uh, taking the one seat, uh, which is a good metaphor to use for how this works. And the metaphor goes that uh, there is a, a room like this uh, with five windows and a door, and that there is a seat in the center of that room. And the practice itself is uh, going and sitting in that one seat. And so when we come here, uh, this uh, kind of center of our own circle is that we take this seat. And uh, our job is to stay here. That is the job. We stay with the breath. This morning we introduced uh, kind of uh, the expansion of that staying with the body uh, in this uh, field of experience. What happens uh, as we sit in the center of this experience? Uh, there is uh, these windows and doors, the five, uh, the windows, the five senses, uh, the experience of, of uh, body sensation, of the heat, uh, the blue jays sound. Um, there are uh, your old stories. Uh, and really the door, swinging door, come in. And each time that something comes into our experience, uh, it's kind of as if uh, jugglers and clowns and um, uh, these uh, wondrous stories with their colorful and uh, sometimes exotic uh, or uh, mean or terrible uh, stories come and hold court. And what happens is that uh, many times uh, we get on simply on this train of association. What happens? You leave the seat. Next thing you know, you're out the window. You're out, you know, having this discussion with the Blue Jay of how he's supposed to act, you know, in, at a meditation retreat. Uh, you know, or the heat about, you know, kind of the aversive thing about, oh, well, you know, if they put that fan over there, then I would be okay, you know, or why don't they, et cetera, et cetera. 
uh, each time leaving uh, that seat in the center of our experience. Uh, in the tradition, uh, they talk about these sort of difficulties are sometimes known as hindrances. And I'd like to simply sort of play with them as these. Uh, the traditional uh, version of them is there's five uh, hindrances or five classic uh, uh, difficulties that arise. And I like to sort of call them demons in some way uh, because uh, the Buddha in his own awakening uh, the story is that uh, after his, uh, when he recognized that there was, uh, this possibility of complete freedom. And he had gone into all sorts of altered states, you know, the highest kind of absorptions that existed. Uh, and uh, he found that every time he came back and uh, was in the marketplace, that what was still there in him? Oh, there was still aversion. He recognized there was still greed. Uh, there was still delusion. Uh, so he took a resolve. And sometimes I think just a retreat in itself is this type of resolve. Uh, it's coming and taking that one seat, sitting in the center of your experience. And as you sit in the center of your experience, uh, strange uh, uh, sort of visitors come. And it would be nice to say, oh, you know, you go back to the breath and, and uh, the visitors just sort of leave on their own. But uh, as we all know, uh, we participate uh, with them in some way. And it's not that we shouldn't participate. That's not the object of this practice. This practice is about gaining wisdom, about seeing into the nature of our own, uh, in a sense, personal and universal conditioning. And to do that, uh, in a sense, we have to know and feel uh, how these work in us. This is a, a wonderful little sort of Buddhist story I like to read. Uh, and it goes, uh, the Buddha once told a story about Saka, the ruler of the devas of the sort of um, heavenly realms. While Saka was out visiting the far reaches of his land, a bitter pot-bellied dwarf, you can do the kind of being in the center of the room, uh, came to visit the castle. Finding the king absent, he went up and sat himself upon the throne. This was an act of supreme sacrilege. Saka's followers tried to bully, shame, taunt, and scarf, scared the dwarf away. He grew bigger and stronger in exact proportion to the resistance to his presence. 
the king was called back from his journey in order to get rid of this unwanted guest. Upon entering the throne room, uh, he draped his robe over the shoulders of the dwarf and knelt before the dwarf in respect. With every act of welcoming and appreciation and recognition, the dwarf became smaller and smaller, uglier and more bitter, until finally he simply vanished. So this is your clue for this evening. This is your clue. So sitting in the center of the room, uh, we have uh, these uh, difficulties. Uh, the Buddha simply, there was a name Mara, which uh, is translated as the tempter, who came on his nine, night of resolve to uh, awaken. And they call it the armies of Mara. Uh, came and, and uh, since uh, what happens to us, attack, attack the Buddha. In the same way, uh, by the way, uh, no different attack you. From my poem, like a prize fighter wanting that last win, staggering from hits and bruises of the old scars, bandages, so many times before. Same old stories told over and over, hoping that somehow the ending will be different. Yeah. So this impatience and this resistance, uh, these states, um, are in a sense to be studied. But uh, like Saka, uh, the great uh, king of the Devas, uh, how to act with them? How do we uh, bring them? Do we uh, try to push them out of the room? Uh, do we? What do we do with them? So here is the here is the test of our practice in a sense. Now these are uh, sort of delegated in in sort of uh, traditionally in five uh, these five forms. And uh, the first uh, is, uh, which is actually what you would say it was uh, not supported culturally. And it is simply uh, that of um, this kind of sensual wanting uh, that appears and uh, sort of holds us in captivity in, uh, you know, uh, simply, you can simply name also greed. And uh, this wanting, and it's uh, first to understand, I think, that somehow uh, there's, there's skillful wanting, uh, wanting to awaken, wanting to help others. Uh, that's skillful. But what I'm talking about here, in a sense, is, the, is that 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 uh, is part of the changing phenomena, the sensual phenomena that's experienced. Uh, and it uh, arises, uh, uh, we all experience it, and actually this culture heavily supports it in kind of uh, getting what you want. And uh, it's not that, it's not saying that pleasant sensation 
which is the forerunner of that experience, is bad. Uh, it is the grasping. Uh, it is the craving and the trying to keep. And that is kind of the uh, trance or the delusion that arises from pleasant experience. As we uh, begin this um, capturing, you know, we sit there and go, well, let's see, how can I keep that? Uh, how can I have more of that? And, uh, and that uh, actually deludes, delude, deludes us. Uh, in, in our seeing. Uh, one of the ways that uh, uh, I experienced this, and many years ago, um, um, sort of uh, up in a in a kind of a cave in uh, the Himalayas, I was caught in a in a um, kind of rain snowstorm, and my experience was that uh, somehow uh, that all my practices, uh, and I had been in India for some years then, and so I thought I was a pretty uh, proficient yogi. And I tried every kind of mantra and, and everything I could come to. And I realized that uh, due to this, uh, these two aspects of who I was that I was getting caught in uh, were actually showing me something. And I'll just explain a little piece of it because uh, it's, it stuck with me. And one of it was that I, would be, I was under this rock and it was kind of snowing and raining, it was cold. And, uh, you know, I thought I was going to uh, die. And I was probably uh, around, uh, you know, 14,000 feet. No one knew where I was. Uh, you know, I hadn't told anybody that I was going up there. And I had a friend in Nepal the year before, a young uh, Danish boy, who had kind of done the same thing and uh, died. So I had that as uh, an awareness. And so I sat there and I thought, oh, I've finally blown it. You know, I have here, I've been running from my life, uh, sort of from Europe where I'd grown up to, you know, the Haight-Ashbury and then uh, overland to India in the 60s. And, um, you know, I was just, I was burning every bridge I could find, you know. And also there was this longing to be free. And then I spent years struggling uh, with so much with these ideals uh, that were really ideals about freedom and that somehow somebody had something bigger to give me. And I remember sitting there after these years of practice and, and thinking I was, you know, this proficient yogi and all I could come up against was this, these two aspects of myself. And one was this, uh, this greed factor, uh, this wanting that would arise in me. And when it was there, I would be writing uh, these letters to my father, which I hadn't seen for, I don't know, by then, seven, eight years. And um, so I would write the, be writing this letter. And I would go, in a sense, into fantasy, into this wanting. And of course, uh, we all do that even here. 
And I would lean out and water would come in and would hit my face. And uh, just like maybe a fan or uh, the a Blue Jay or some body experience wakes you up to the moment. Recognize, oh, I just left the room. Matter of fact, I went all the way down the road, you know, almost to Boulder Creek. And then the water would wake me up and I would come back. And then a few minutes later, uh, I would suddenly go, what am I doing here? Oh my God, I'm going to die. What would happen? So then there would be this pushing back, trying to get away from what's here. And what would happen is I would hit my head on the back of, the, of this rock, which was cold and wet. And again, I'd go, whoa, I'm here. That's what I began to, I did this all night long. And I really got that there was this place in the center. No. That's not, um, that is that seat in the center there when you take that one seat. It does not leave the room. And it is where this luminous mind, it's where this freedom exists. Otherwise, we're simply leaning out of present moment. We're leaning into something, you know, some kind of uh, wanting, some kind of, uh, you know, longing for uh, some pleasantness that we can hold. There's a wonderful, this is a, oh, I'm glad to bring him into this room, uh, Robert Hull, uh, one of our colleagues and uh, loved um, poets. And uh, this is a poem called The Wanting Creature. The wanting creature is loose. All the time he leers and lurks behind good thoughts and desperate bursts of hope. He corrals the unsuspecting, surprises everyone with his smart promises and chic ideas. The wanting creature born within, living only to get out and wreak violent greed. Go after him, see where he hides with all the wreckage dripping from his fat and quivering jowls. There's nothing to lose. He has already destroyed last year's crop. He is no friend to anybody. Only wants what feels good for now and tells you that's all there is. Don't believe him. He'll trick you every time then you'll have to start over again. First forgiveness, then the resolve to go on, tiptoeing your way past his dark cave, hoping today is the day he sleeps. But you know deep down, he is a very light sleeper. In the tradition, they uh, use this analogy uh, of a sailor out in a boat, and he gets thirsty. 
and he gets thirstier and thirsty. So he takes his cup and he dips it into the ocean and he drinks. He drinks that salt water. And uh, in a sense, that's the analogy of this uh, wanting mind, this, you know, if only then I would be happy kind of uh, uh, leaning uh, out. So make friends with this part of yourself. Uh, it is uh, sometimes very subtle, very elusive, and you don't catch for some time. But it's got quivering jaw, jowls. So, um, uh, and it has its uh, kind of seductiveness to it. Uh, but in this practice, it is considered one of the difficulties or hindrances to that luminous mind, to that wakefulness, that natural uh, uh, really uh, just simply presence that is free from uh, conditions. Uh, another aspect of this is kind of two-sided coin here. Uh, is uh, what we know as uh, uh, aversion. And uh, aversion, again, uh, starts with this very subtle unpleasantness. And it arises, and if we could catch it just as dislike, we'd be okay. You know, it wouldn't have a charge on it. But what we're talking about here are charges. Uh, it has a strong charge. And that charge, in a sense, uh, sucks us in and we no longer can keep our seat in the center as we were out the door, you know, and we may end up in Boulder Creek. And so much is based on this thing of kind of the, sometimes uh, that aversion is uh, the building of the inner critic, uh, which I find in the West is so, uh, such a powerful thing of, of in a sense that uh, I have to do something to be loved. You know the story. You know, it's not, you're not good enough just as you are. Uh, you're going to have to perform to be loved. Uh, you're going to have to do something, be somebody uh, to be loved. So you have this uh, critic that uh, goes around and, and tells you uh, the story about uh, being perfect, how that's to be, how the practice, how you should be perfect, you know. And with that comes this uh, polarity, this aversive mind. You know, uh, looks around sometimes, and uh, you know we have uh, a, a kind of the uh, what we call VVs, vipassana vendettas. You know, so the person who closed the door downstairs, and as you walk through, you know, suddenly you create this whole story about them. You haven't spoken to them. It's sort of like. Gil was talking the other night about his sort of VR, Vipassana romance, and kind of the wanting side of it. There's also its opposite. Uh, again, a delusion. Uh, and that we can create these elaborate, uh, in a sense, fantasies, these stories, uh, through that aversive mind. And uh, our practice here is to recognize the... Um, uh, actually, the complexity of how that somehow that leaning away 
uh, prevents us from sitting in the center and recognizing kind of our own luminosity, our own freedom. This is a little tough, but um, I'm going to read anyway. It's, it's called uh, The Enemy Maker by Sam Keen. And it's how to create an enemy. Start with an empty canvas. Sketch in broad outlines the forms of men, women, and children. Dip into the unconscious well of your own disowned darkness with a wide brush and stain the strangers with a sinister hue of the shadow. Trace unto the face of the enemy the greed, the hatred, the carelessness you dare not claim as your own. Obscure the sweet individuality of each face. Erase all hints of the mirrored loves, hopes, fear, that play through the kaleidoscope of every infinite heart. Twist the smile until it forms the downward curl, the arc of cruelty. Strip flesh from bone until only the abstract skeleton of death remains. Exaggerate each feature until man is metamorphosized into beast, vermin, insect. Fill the background with malignant figures from the ancient nightmares, devils, demons. When your icon of the enemy is complete, you will be able to kill without guilt, slaughter without shame. The thing you destroy will have become merely an enemy of God, an impediment to the sacred dialectics of history. So simply starting with unpleasantness turns into dislike. And then through, in a sense, uh, these unknown feelings uh, look what we've created, you know, uh, in this world uh, through that simple, unpleasant dislike. So it is simply, uh, as we sit here in the center of our experience, uh, when we push away from an experience, when we simply uh, see either sometimes uh, what is held is uh, the aversion is sometimes masked as part, sometimes it's anger, uh, sometimes uh, the aversiveness is just fear. And out of that, uh, we create these demons, these stories, these uh, I was thinking in the Tibetan pantheon here, let's see if they got any uh, Vajrapani up there. Uh, these kind of wrathful states uh, that concretize, in a sense, the present. It concretizes the reality 
of our experience. And what is that concretizing? You know, what does, uh, in, in body experience, what does fear do? What does anger do? What does greed do? If it pushes us out of this center, which is actually free, is what we've done is we have taken and narrowed our experience uh, down to a very small experience. Does not take in. Uh, greed does not take in the possibility of generosity, the possibility of sharing. Uh, it only takes in what it wants. No, that creature. Uh, or the dislike, this aversion, the fear. It doesn't, it simply uh, contracts in itself and uh, sees only separateness. So our practice here is uh, skillfulness of these two sides. Uh, also, as uh, uh, part of these uh, difficulties, we have another sort of two-sided piece that I know you have all kind of experienced. And the first, particularly coming into this retreat and the warmth and stuff, is one simply called uh, sloth and torpor. No. Uh, I'm extremely familiar with this one, and it's a, a long friend. Because many times in each retreat, it, in a sense, with our lives, we spin and we come up with, you know, one time will it be aversive, and next time it'll be greed, and sometime it'll just be uh, kind of, uh, uh, I think the, the sloth and torpor is a lot of times resistance. You know, something's going on, and we just uh, don't want to deal with it. So we just kind of crash out, you know, after we've rested, you know, and I don't mean to um, downplay that because I think in our culture with the uh, multiple, uh, the amount of input uh, that comes at us, that coming here, uh, there has to be many levels of deep resting, uh, but also it will happen. And I'm not saying it happened today. I'm not saying it will happen tomorrow. I'm saying it will happen while you're here. You're here long enough. But there's also um, this degree of uh, which was simply of sloth and trouble, which has to do with resistance. And uh, what Mary talked about is that uh, second one, this part about how much of this practice is based on the, you know, really the balance of, of being present, which you can say is effort. I think in our culture, we have to be very careful about effort because we've been taught that it's about something you get, about a goal. And this is more about the ability uh, to stay present, uh, that the effort is, is about staying present, not about getting somewhere. Uh, so, in a sense, we have to be careful and interpret that one properly. Um, uh, traditionally, there are sort of the antidotes when uh, the kind of tiredness is there, uh, the heat particularly here, uh, is the first day we talked about the standing, uh, keeping your eyes open, 
you can go and put some water on your face, put a wet towel on. Uh, all these things are very helpful. Uh, when you're walking, you can walk uh, a little faster. But my favorite one that the Buddha talks about is uh, pinching the earlobes. You know, uh, actually from Chinese acupuncture, I guess there's a lot of nerves there, and you know, uh, it uh, can bring energy. You know, unless you've got too many earrings or something, that can be a little painful. Um, so, but it's something to work with. You know, and for me, if all else fails, you know, take a nap. You know, it's kind of sometimes the right thing to do for the balance. Uh, in other times, uh, there there is, uh, in a sense, this is such a great opportunity being here. That if you can find that balance where you don't too much uh, effort creates anxiousness, uh, too little create sloth. And so we're always looking for that uh, kind of balance in the practice. Um, so the, another aspect of this is uh, the fact that uh, there's also a, a really difficult one to work with called restlessness. And you may come up against this one. There is, first of all, there's two aspects to, there's first restlessness of the body which is really sort of karmic. It just sort of happens. You know, it's not anything you can immediately put your finger on, like what you ate or, you know, your rest rest last night. But it can come and uh, drive you bonkers, you know. And again, this sense of, uh, for me, the whole thing of the mindfulness and a sense of friendliness to that uh, and sort of, you know, what died to the restlessness is really what you can do is in the sense surrender. Um, good luck. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a difficult one. Uh, the second aspect of that is mental because it's really body. And that one has to do with a condition we call worry. And it's also quite prevalent in this culture in the sense that, uh, what is it? It's a string of words in the mind that uh, is based on the future, right? So in the middle of the night you wake up and it's something about the future in some way. And our practice here uh, from that uh, viewpoint is, uh, is the possibility uh, of using the breath, using the body, using, in a sense, uh, uh, the practice to stay in the present moment. Uh, because it doesn't go anywhere. It simply is a hindrance. It is a delusion. It will, you will be out of this room, out of here, down the hall. Uh, you know, you will be headed towards Boulder Creek. You know, and um, and it's extra. You know, it's something I hope that you can learn. You know, learn to work with because there is a kind of surrendering. Uh, I find very much surrendering to the body. Uh, particularly in the middle of the night, uh, when something something in the mind engages like that. Uh, so uh, this uh, restlessness of worry, and then the uh, fifth of these, uh, which 
is the most difficult uh, I see to work with. Uh, there's two kinds of doubt. Uh, there is a doubt which is necessary. Uh, it is what I see in the Western culture is one of the most powerful tools. And it is this question of who am I? And so it's what sort of brings us here is the doubt in the kind of how all this works. Uh, that's not the doubt I'm talking about. I'm talking about the little d. And in this case, it has to do, um, in a sense, uh, with your recognition uh, of that luminous mind of presence. And that when we don't believe we have Buddha nature, when we don't believe we are that awakening part of that, then there is this uh, self-doubt uh, that actually paralyzes and prevents us uh, from uh, uh, going deep at all. All it does is keep us on the surface uh, of the pond uh, that we constantly are circling around uh, in constant doubt of experience. Therefore, there's no dropping down and uh, is, a, is a very difficult uh, hindrance, and it comes. You know. And uh, all of these have, in a sense, uh, uh, I, I would say the antidote of what I read from um, Saka uh, is the greatest help you'll have here in a sense of mindfulness. And sometimes I think if you can uh, bow to it and uh, in the sense of recognition, that that's a powerful, powerful way. Uh, they say that uh, the, the first of these is uh, this wanting mind, that if we kind of explore, uh, one of them is uh, simply this idea of karma, of, of, uh, of uh, the fragility of life. You know, uh, we all die. And so can we uh, take that greed in, in the sense of looking at uh, the, uh, this aspect of uh, impermanence and uh, uh, the fragility and life expectancy uh, that we have. And it kind of puts that uh, into perspective uh, because in that sometimes is, is the greed is lust and... and um, are uh, reaching out in some way and seeing it, kind of seeing it in perspective. Uh, the same way that when aversion comes, and again, if you can just bow to it and allow it, uh, it's, um, you know, in a sense, its own movement uh, without getting caught up in the content of the story, uh, but kind of feeling the contraction and letting it kind of unhinge in a sense or untangle itself. Uh, that would be appropriate. But also as a skillful means, sometimes when we get so overpowered by, uh, say, anger, you know, or overpowered by fear, where we lose our stability in some way, just as sometimes in lust we lose our stability, uh, then it's possible to uh, do, uh, uh, today when Mary was doing the metta practice this afternoon, is to simply evoke the metta 
to soften and, and it will you know many times it will bring you back at least it'll get you to the you know downstairs and maybe under the tarp or something and um, it'll be easier to get back to your seat. And I believe I talked about um, uh, the others are working with them in the sense of sloth and torpor is uh, really the bringing energy in, balanced energy in. And um, sometimes I find with when there's a lot of restlessness, uh, I count one and two and three and, and three out four and and so I just count up to ten and start over again over and over and over again until the body settles and uh, and for me with with the worry uh, actually I, I do this I kind of scan my body and try to keep my my mind and my body, so it kind of releases that, uh, that um, it's almost an addiction uh, to the future in some way. And doubt, um, you know, come talk to us. Uh, if it gets really, really strong, that's kind of what we're here for. Is, you know, we only have one job here, really. You know, it looks pretty fancy in some way, but it's just to stay. You know, if we can convince you to stay and do this, that's good enough for us. You know, uh, in a sense, it takes care of itself that way. So I'd like to end here. I'll, I'll read uh, the poem I wrote to you again. And uh, uh, I did post it downstairs. So if it doesn't make sense to you, well, so be it. If it does, great. Sitting in the center of the circle, luminous perfection, the mirror unstained, heating up hotter and hotter, melting that frozen moment held in the closet of memory. Die, just die. Blue Jays, like great cheerleaders, stirring you on. Die, die. The past holds no future here. The whirling fan hums the eternal mantra, letting go, letting go, letting go. Like a prize fighter, wanting that last win, staggering from hits and bruises of the old scars, bandages, so many times before. Same old stories told over and over, hoping that somehow the ending will be different. Sitting in the center of the circle, the breath reappears. Demons came to visit today asking for my support. Quote, I did, but tomorrow, maybe not. With friends like these, who says the armoring of the heart 
won't melt. Who says the armoring of the heart won't melt? This talk was given by John Travis at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on August 8, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed.